want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, nice. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kolsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, sounding a little different than normal. Uh, yes, we are trying out a new arrangement to facilitate certain things. But actually, uh, now that we're past that, I have a question. Kate, are Americans afraid of Canadians? Why would you say that? You're like the nicest people ever. Yeah, well, I've been trying to arrange a working holiday in Colorado this summer, and I've discovered that... America has by far the most stringent rules about working holidays from like within the entire developed world. So thanks, America. I don't understand the concept of a working holiday, though, because either you're working or you're on holiday. So, I mean, we're like you're going somewhere to work for for a period of time that somewhat resembles a holiday. Basically. Oh, I see. Working vacation, I guess you might call it. Okay. Well, I do know that our immigration is a significant pain in the ass based on personal experience with uh, some family members trying to get in into and out of the country. Uh, so yes, I do not envy you. And that's with you being a Canadian. We all love Canadians. So. Well, I, I was just wondering if when I talk, if, if our American listeners, who I'm assuming comprise most of our listeners, just tremble with quiet fear. Because that's the impression I get from your government. Heaven forbid that you come into our country. Well, I wish you luck with that, because I know if, if that comes through, it'll be a lot of fun for you and uh, a good opportunity. So uh, if, if anybody who's involved in that process is listening, you know, let, let Simon come into the U.S. <laughs> let him, yes. you know, go be awesome. It was a very full week of television. We're going to be touching on a few shows, not covering everything, because uh, there's just too much to cover. So we'll kind of try to dive in a little bit more uh, deeply with a few shows. But uh, that being said, we had a lot of fun talking with you guys this week on Twitter and email and all of that. Uh, Carl says, Kate and Simon, the question of the week is one I have thought a lot about because like Simon, I am wondering if after watching shows like The Walking Dead and Hannibal, I have a violent ceiling. For those who are uh, not aware, what was the question of the week last week, Simon? I think that was precisely it. Is there any, do you have a, a, a limit for for gore or violence at this point, given given certain things that we've seen in the recent past. Uh, so Carl says, I think for me the actual depiction of gore does not really phase me anymore, but uh, when you couple that with imagining the emotional distress, it does push past my threshold. The one episode from uh, Hannibal from season one, Amu's Bush, where the victims were buried alive was a lot to take, and the very cold open of uh, episode two of this season. It was hard to see the emotional distress of the victim. I'm just going to stop. We all, Anybody who watched knows what happened, and I don't need to relive it by reading out but yes you're absolutely right carl uh he says i will say i think the graphic nature is not necessary i think less is always more in leaving the scary bits up to our imaginations thoughts on that um i i mean hannibal is an interesting subject because uh, apparently according to brian fuller they've only had one image so far that nbc wasn't cool with and they didn't do and it was really arbitrary given what they have shown us but I don't know. For, for me personally, I, I mean, I, it's definitely true that when you couple it with emotional violence or emotional distress, when you add that component, it's much more 
uh, sort of shocking. That's why if I if I happen to watch a random episode of the following, I probably just won't care. But um, I don't know. For me, that there to properly answer the question, there I, I think violence can still shock even on its own. I mean, thinking about that sequence from Deadwood in particular, it's all about you know execution. Let's say. Well, and. Yes, there's a place for escapism and ridiculous, you know, explosions and fight scenes and everything in in your television as well. But I feel like a show that, you know, that has murderers and serial killers and all this sort of really gruesome uh, depiction of humanity and or of of a segment of humanity should be emotionally distressing. Uh, And that's why I'm such a fan of Hannibal and really, really don't like the following because I feel like don't don't exploit this kind of violence and this kind of ugliness if you aren't going to ask that the viewers care about the victims, too. So uh, so I, I think that's a very well stated point, Carl. Um, Sean says his answer of the week is that I don't think I've encountered anything on TV that reached my threshold, but the scene in Saw 2 where Shawnee Smith's character gets thrown into a pit of syringes, ow, and has to claw her way through them was the only time I can remember having to close my eyes while watching something. It's not a good film, you just don't bother me, and it's not particularly gory in the traditional sense, but that was an utterly unpleasant experience. The explicit conclusion to Hood's fight with the albino in Banshee Season 1 was pretty awful, especially for male viewers, but I think the gore in a scene is easier to take if you're watching the good guy, capital G, capital G, beating down the bad guy, capital B, capital G. So if it's a trope and not really a person in the same way, that can really affect your viewing of it. And I, I agree. Yeah, uh, that's actually a good scene to reference the albino fight. Now I'm remembering exactly what he's talking about, and it's not pleasant. <laughs> um, off of that lovely topic, let's move on to some of our other feedback. Uh, we talked the good wife with several of you, um, Zhao, and Joe, let me know if I'm saying your name right, because I feel like I'm probably not, and I feel bad, because you're awesome, and you send us feedback, and I would like to say your name right, so let me know. Um, anyways, he says, can someone give Elizabeth Tassioni her own spinoff? We'll be talking about The Good Wife later in the podcast, uh, but how much does, does this episode feel like it's the setup for a USA spinoff about a pair of, of a female lawyers off to start a new firm and take on the world? Um, a lot. Of course, this is what the upteenth time we've discussed the theoretical Tassioni spinoff. Yeah, but I feel like adding that that uh, more serious like counterbalance partner from Jill Hennessy, like I feel like that just really sets it in stone. Like this, yes, this is a USA show that exists in like I don't know the Betaverse or something. In this other parallel universe of our world, there is a USA show with these two characters. It's uh, yeah, it it did have that feel. Although frankly, I was more distracted by other elements of her plot line in that episode, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, we are heard from Mario on several topics, including uh, the good wife. Yes. Carrie and Kalinda have no chemistry. I love them, but move on. And uh, he also says, uh, Tambor, Jeffrey Tambor politely giving Alicia the cold shoulder. What's up with that? Uh, and uh, I think that's a interesting point. This is one of the first times that I feel like they've, I won't say mishandled because it's so early on in this arc, but, this is one of the rare times where it feels like rather than they're putting a storyline or a development on the back burner and we'll return to it later, it feels more like they've just sort of dropped it and forgotten about it. That's how I felt after, you know, the the, the let's have lunch phone call and then nothing. And then we got it picked up last week and then it's been dropped again. It, it, this is the first time that that approach hasn't necessarily worked for me on the show. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Uh, again, it's it's early to say. I mean, they do have a habit of 
evoking things or introducing something and then leaving it alone for two or three or seven episodes. I mean, we got the return of the NSA this week after, what, ten episodes, it feels like? Uh, and even then without Zach Woods, and I didn't have a problem with that. So I'm I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on this. Fair enough. He also says, I love Alicia. She doesn't realize she actually has a sense of humor. And that, yes, absolutely. Um, as for the question of the week, he loves Hannibal, but it makes him squirm. True Detective is a little bit better. Grim gets a cheerful yuck, and The Walking Dead makes me barf, he says. because uh, Perhaps because every week I forget and I watch it while I'm eating my dinner. And I used to do that with Bones. I would always forget, and then as soon as I would have started the episode, I would be mid-meal and go, wait, what did I just do? Uh, do you ever run into that situation, Simon? Uh, I have, I mean, sort of, I have a problem with Hannibal where it makes me hungry, actually. <laughs> That's delightful. Um, Steph says uh, that this week's uh, rain, or last week's rain, that is, was very good, funny, and no expository dialogue. We also talked a little bit more back and forth about that, and I'm a little intrigued. Not enough to tune back in, but I'm I'm intrigued by the well, you know the, the elements that she was mentioning so that's i'm glad to hear that it's you know moving in the right direction amanda says that she's scared to watch hannibal the last teen wolf kept her awake all night not sure she's up for cannibalism and i would like to hear from our listeners how they're feeling about teen wolf because i have a student who loves teen wolf and has been trying to get me to watch it and i did watch the mid-season premiere and i enjoyed that you know not enough to get me to watch the the rest of this half season but i did enjoy it so I'm intrigued by what's going on. I know they're coming up to their season finale in a couple weeks. So let us know, listeners, if uh, you feel like we should be checking out Teen Wolf. Uh, see, we also talked Hannibal with Noel, Carl, and Sean, and Walking Dead with uh, Ken and E.G. Uh, and again, let me know if I said your name wrong. Uh, I would like to get I would like to get everybody's names right because you guys are all great and you write in and you let us know what's going on. So I'd like to credit you appropriately with your with your comments. But all that being said, uh, we should move on. We have a lot to a lot of television to talk about. At the end of the podcast, we're going to be talking with Sean Coletti, who is my co-host on the Hannibal podcast at Sound Insight. This is our design. Um, but he's coming on the Televerse this week to talk with us about Family Tree, the Christopher Guest series from last year. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good time. It's not very frequent that we uh, cover a series that we've previously covered on the show on the shelf, but it worked out. Yeah, it was good. So that'll be coming at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's take a break and come back with our week in reality and comedy. This is a song about a bad girl. Something that happened to me a long time ago. In reality, we have The Amazing Race, Smarter Not Harder, and as we also have uh, Our Week in Comedy. We'll talk a little bit about Parks and Rec, Bob's Burgers, and then focus more on Enlisted and Girls. But first, reality, you were all set to watch The Amazing Race this week, and then... My PVR failed. Yeah, 
So, That's actually true. I'm not making it up. <laughs> well, and it's unfortunate because I, I know you haven't been able to watch it because you've been traveling. Um, and so I was looking forward to talking about this one with you because I thought it was actually really good. And uh, they did the impossible this week. They made me like Rachel. What? Wow. I know. How did they do that? Well, because it, she really seems like she has matured and grown since the last time she was on The Amazing Race. And I think, you know, maybe seeing... Obviously, these are highly edited, but seeing a highly edited version of herself on the show may have affected that. You know, there's nothing to make you realize certain foibles that you may have. For example, saying um and like a lot <laughs> as, as hearing yourself back on a podcast or watching yourself, you know, in on the recording of, of some sort. So maybe that affected her uh, the way that she approaches certain situations. But she was hugely positive. She was uh, very supportive of uh, herself, of, of her teammate and her fiance or husband, that is. And but also the other teams. She had a really positive attitude. She kept her chin up. She didn't, uh, she wasn't going to quit when other people were ready to quit. And uh, I was really impressed by her this week. And so I was very glad when they got to the mat and it was an non-elimination round because I wanted them to still be in the race. So we'll see what what happens. And they tend, her and, and, and Brandon do tend to be uh, good competitors. As much as they can be really annoying in their interpersonal dynamic, they do tend to be pretty smart about how they actually run the race. So I was a little surprised to see them at the end. And the challenges this week were really great. I mean, both of us would have destroyed the DJ challenge they had. It was sort of like a, a Simon Says kind of scratching challenge where uh-huh. they'd have to mimic the rhythm of a scratch and they were just and both teammates would have to do it. And there was only seven of them. So if we were on the Amazing Race, Simon, we would have destroyed that. We wouldn't have even needed to practice. It was so straightforward. But if you didn't have a really strong sense of rhythm, it was very challenging. And the other challenge, it was like choose one of the two. They had to stack seven glasses up, like um, tumbler, like tall tumbler, Tom Collinsy kind of glasses, and mm-hmm. then uh, arc them and pour them into seven mar- stacked martini glasses. And the bottom row of four were red, and the top row of three were orange. And they couldn't get any of the colors in any of them. And it took several teams three hours to do this. Uh, so, wow. yeah, it, it looked like it was a bitch of a challenge. <laughs> I also have to give credit to Jessica of Jessica and John because uh, she she was like bleeding from her feet because they had this trampoline challenge where they had to jump on a on a bamboo trampoline. And it was, you know, it was really physically tough after a while. And she's getting she's huge blisters. She's bleeding from her feet. And she's like, no, let's do it. OK, let's wrap my feet and let's do it again. Let's do it again and keep going. And then they finish. And I'm sorry, he's not still not coming across well. Uh, John is like, let's go. When he starts running, it's like, didn't you just see your fiance's feet? Why are you asking her to run right now? Uh, but she she proved herself a badass this week, so tip of the hat to them. I'm still doing horribly in the poll. I think I'm in last place, but it's been fun, and I'm really enjoying the, the you know my the, my team. The Cowboys seem like they're doing well, so I, I hope that you do get to to catch up with some amazing race at some point, Sammy, because I, I would love to see your thoughts on uh, the growth of of Rachel and some of these other teams as well. I will do my little best. We'll see. But let's move on to the comedies and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Parks and Rec. I, I've been behind on the show, but I caught back up, and I'm liking what they're doing with Ron this week. I like that they are giving Leslie a potential larger canvas to work in, and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but I, mostly I just wanted to mention it because I, I ha- we haven't in a few weeks, and uh, I've enjoyed my time 
uh, dealing with the whole the merger and the new slogan and all of that. I think that's that's going along pretty well. The Pawnee Eagleton stuff is really working for yeah, me. Yeah, it, it was it was pleasant. I'm still waiting for. This sounds mean, but I'm still kind of waiting for Parks and Rec 3.0 to justify its existence. To you know, to, to convince me that it's better off as a thing that is still going, as opposed to a thing that should have probably ended by now. Interesting. Well, and and if they do, I mean, it, it almost feels like they're setting up to have Leslie leave the show, which I don't think they are, but I kind of feel like they need to have happen because she should have progressed beyond Pawnee at this point, especially since Pawnee seems to hate her. Um, so. Yeah, I, we'll see what they do with this larger job. But would you be interested in a Parks and Rec that had the other characters, but not Leslie? I don't see how that could possibly work, especially considering there's at least one regular we've only just met. Okay, well, we'll see what happens with it uh, through the rest of the season. I didn't get a chance to catch up with Bob's Burgers yet, but uh, but I know you did. What are your thoughts on it this week? Uh, just quickly, I thought it was probably their best episode for a few weeks. I mean, it was t- almost completely Tina-centric, so that's... has. I don't think there's ever been a bad Tina-centric or even slightly not good completely Tina-centric episode. Uh, so that's, you know, she's... I mean, she's one of the best characters on TV, so if you're going to put her in the center, it's going to be a... It's going to be an, an all-around winner, and I, I, and I like that they let her just be kind of terrible for an episode and not really learn anything. That's always fun, especially on 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 Bob's. Uh, shall we move on to Enlisted? Yes, let's do that. What did you think about vets and our sort of doppelganger trio of uh, older veterans? I didn't think that the switch to I mean I, we we've praised Enlisted in the past for balancing its pathos and its wackiness in uh, in a way that is refreshing. It felt a little bit off kilter to me this week because it was. It felt like it was wackiness for the first 95% of the time and then sort of crammed in some pathos at the end, literally over the credits, which was, I don't know, I thought that was kind of an awkward fit, but maybe that was just me. Well, and my DVR cut off the pathos over the credits. He started oh. to talk and it cut. And I was like, no, I could tell just by the way the scene was you know, sh- shaping itself that it was going to be a really touching moment a really important moment for that character and my dvr cut off and if you leave it for literally the last seconds that's a pro- going to be a problem for people i was able to, to to you know to watch it on demand and and see that last moment but it's frustrating when you have to sit through you know you can't fast forward you have to sit through 22 episodes and 22 minutes 25 minutes of a show you've already seen and that you enjoy but still you've already seen to get that one beat right because the last moments of sitcoms, you know, the, whatever is happening over the credits or the sting or whatever, is almost universally just sort of a wacky, almost an outtake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I don't know where that the, the issue with that lies with, with the uh, commercial breaks and with the, the way it's split down, or if that's with the editing choices that they made in the episode to have it come into just the right amount of time, but... But no, but yeah, I mean that that was a little little unfortunate. Uh, I do think for me it worked better the balance of pathos and uh, and and wackiness because I did see that earlier in the episode as well. It was a little um, maybe it was a little obvious to have such a clear parallel between the three uh, older veterans and the three of obviously the three brothers. But I mean when you have Dean Stockwell and Stacey Keach and Barry Boswick showing up on your episode, I'm probably going to enjoy it. Well, I mean, it was to their credit that they made it as explicit as humanly possible mm-hmm. by literally having them line up and then pair off. If they tried to make that subtle, I think they knew that that would have just been 
almost insulting. So I, I would rather they embrace the obviousness than try to make make a thing that is clearly not very finessed. Finessed. Yeah, and it's, it's, I'm always happy to see Stacy Keach. Always, always, always. Yeah, it's a good thing. So let's move on to girls and uh, I saw you and this is the penultimate episode of this season. It's gone by so quickly. Uh, what did you think of where we left things and uh, who is the best and the worst of the girls this week? Uh, well, the worst is obviously Hannah again. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like she's had a few weeks off and this week she gets to be the worst again. Uh, because we finally had her quit her job, which I, we really all should have seen coming. Uh, but I, I feel like nothing on girls except for Adam and Hannah has ever lasted more than four episodes. No, sorry. Nothing on girls except for Adam and Hannah and Jessa doing drugs. Those are the things that last. Uh, I guess they've kept Shoshana in school, but we haven't really seen much of that. In general, things on girls are not built to last, so we probably should have seen that coming. Uh, the winner is obviously Elijah. Can we just can we give him this one because his especially for his Marnie impression that was fantastic. Yeah, Elijah's great, and I like having that dynamic with him and Hannah back on the show. It just kind of makes me happy that they're friends again. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean the the different uh, parts of the episode I think all all really worked. I, I think as as frustrating as Hannah is being right now, I think they're doing a good job of letting us see where she's coming from, that this is somebody who is very fragile. And uh, I think having, you know, Patty Lapone telling you that your boyfriend's going to cheat on you doesn't help <laughs> when you're already a fragile, you know, emotionally fragile person. But uh, I do think that this episode does get across that she is worried that she's, this is somebody that she's sort of in her mind as they discussed a couple weeks ago, is assumed that she's going to be with forever, that she's eventually going to get married to him and they'll, they'll be, you know, kind of it's them against the world. And she feels like he's slipping away and her reaction instead of giving him what he needs is to just cling on and make the situation worse. Um, I don't know. Did, did that come across for you well, or, or are you just frustrated with her right now? Uh, like intellectually, I understand that. And I think that I, you're right that the show has gotten that across, but I think my frustration with her is uh, much stronger than my appreciation of where she's coming from. Mind you, I was also frustrated with Ray this week, who I was really, really hoping would have the inner strength to not have sex with Marnie. But but then he did it. (laughs) Oh, Ray. The conversation with Adam and Ray was interesting in this episode uh, because – that's a I don't know maybe it's just my uh my perspective on on relationships but when, as soon as you start saying I'm gonna wait for the perfect person because that's I I shouldn't settle or I shouldn't compromise there is no perfect person so he's so Ray is so clearly full of shit well whereas maybe he doesn't need to be single right now maybe that's the best thing for him and that's that's great but if he's expecting that some perfect person is gonna drop down into his life that's just not gonna happen well I mean there's a difference between. <laughs> I think it's perfectly fair from his perspective to say, like, I need to hold out for something real when the alternative is Marnie, who's at least at this rate is so clearly not ready for a relationship with someone like Ray. Um, Whereas I feel like they're setting up Shoshana 2.0 and Ray in the future because the Shoshana that we've met recently is a way better fit for Ray than the Shoshana we knew before. But anyway... Um, you know, you're right. Yeah, there is no perfect person, but 
he had, you know, the Marnie situation just kind of showed up at his doorstep literally, and it can be easy to accept things that just sort of fall into your lap, and it and it can be more difficult to reject them because they're not ideal, which is sort of what I was hoping he would keep doing, but I guess not. Well, yeah, and I do, I absolutely agree with you that clearly Marnie's not in the best headspace or the uh, the most together place, and she's not, uh, she still doesn't feel like a developed and real and fully realized person uh, the character does but i mean she doesn't feel like she knows herself at all and we see that in those those wonderful scenes in the gallery where she should be able to talk to this uh this artist that she respects but she won't give an opinion she won't just be honest and and uh, have a conversation or that archiving job would be hers but she won't do it and so instead jessa who doesn't even remember the the woman's name comes in and gets a job and that she will probably ruin knowing her, yes. her, her pattern this year. Almost certainly. Uh, I was a little disappointed to see Natalie Morales show up in what seems to be a pretty thankless role. But, hey, I'm glad that she showed up, though. Maybe, we know, who knows? We'll see what happens with it. But I would like to think Girls is a show that has really done well by their guest performers. And so I'm hoping that, that this is a character we're going to see again a few more times and that she will get more to do. Yeah, I had the same thought about Jessica Williams, who we could very easily never see again after this, but I'm hoping that's not the case. Yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. Any other thoughts on uh, on Girls this week, or or shall we move to our week in comedy? Uh, only that they've had uh, an amazing season, possibly their best, and I'm expecting them to bring the pain next week. Oh, God, I don't want to think about that. Oh, you're probably <laughs> right. You're probably right, but I don't want to. I'm definitely right. Thing. Come on. Well, what was your week in comedy? Uh, I will, I should quickly mention, uh, Adventure Time, which had its, uh, which I never know whether to stick it in comedy or genre or whatever, but we don't have a kid section and it's not really for kids anymore anyway. But, um, I will mention Adventure Time because they had their fifth season finale after 52 episodes and they're back next month because they're insane. But, uh, I thought it was a, a really beautiful finale, not especially funny, but had some great little moments, but as a comedy, I will definitely give it to girls. Yeah, I'll give it to girls as well. There were several other episodes this week that that I enjoyed and uh, that I'm sure you did as well. Uh, That wraps up our week in comedy. Now let's take a break and come back with our week in genre. Thank you. 
in genre. I'm going to preview the 100 very briefly. Then we'll uh, talk a little bit about the From Dusk Till Dawn pilot and then move on to Hannibal. But uh, first, the pilot for the 100 is going to be airing this week. It's on the CW, and it's one that I watched at Comic-Con last year. Uh, so if anybody is curious, you can go back and find our Comic-Con episode and uh, our, our recap episode of Comic-Con and hear my th- extended thoughts there. Mostly, I think this is a show that went over really well at Comic-Con with audiences, and I know that some critics are, are more positive on it than I am. I was very underwhelmed. I don't. I, I think the adult cast is way more interesting than the, than the teen cast. The trappings around uh, these characters are just so familiar that I'm not interested. I don't need to see another Lord of the Flies uh, re- rehash, and that's sort of what this feels like. If I felt like the show was willing to actually, you know, embrace the campy fun and kill off characters and start winnowing down that 100 right away, then I think I might enjoy it more. But uh, while there are elements here that I think are interesting on the whole, it's not, it's, it's not interesting enough to get me to, to tune in uh, after, after the pilot. However, if your choices are between some of the other CW shows in the 100, if it's like, should I watch Starcrossed or should I check out the 100? I would say check out the 100 and then let me know what you think. Cause, uh, it's, it's not like it's a particularly weak pilot. It's just not interesting enough for me to make time in a TV landscape that is very full of shows that are at least as good, if not better, and certainly more interesting. But Kate, this is nothing like Lord of the Flies because they're sexy. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on from uh, the 100, the Walking Dead had uh, their anti-penultimate episode this week, The Grove, and we have the Sound of State Walking Dead podcast, which is already up in your Televerse feed. If you do not subscribe to the Televerse on uh, iTunes, you can find this episode up at uh, soundoutside.org, and it was contentious because I actually really like this episode, and my co-host Ricky D, our editor-in-chief at Sound Outside, hated it. So much, so much hate. So uh, I thought it was actually really well done. Uh, there, it's not a great episode necessarily because there are some some significant weak points for me. I don't care about the two little girls even after this episode, and that's kind of not a good thing. But on the whole, the episode really did work for me, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So I would encourage if you are interested in The Walking Dead or you watch this episode and you want to hear more feedback, listen to that podcast because it it was it was fun. <laughs> We're never going to get you to watch more, are we? I actually did think about watching this one after reading about it, just because the responses were so hilariously disparate. But uh, no, not really. <laughs> Are we going to get you to check out the From Dusk Till Dawn pilot? Is that a movie that you enjoy? I haven't seen the film. Is that a movie that you enjoy? What is your thought on just the notion of, of the this Robert Rodriguez series and even just his curated channel or network of El Rey? <sighs> I mean... I admire Robert Rodriguez's work ethic and his uh, hands-on, the hands-on nature of his work, the fact that he is, you know, he handles every aspect of production, and he even has talked about how he wants to revolutionize television production. That's great. I'm sure that on a financial level, he can totally do that. That being said, I don't remember the last time he actually made a good movie. Uh, Maybe Sin City, and we're talking, that's now what, 12, 15 years old. Anyway, uh, so I don't have, and I've, and I've actually never seen From Dusk Till Dawn. I saw the preview for it roughly 300 times on VHS when I was a kid, but never actually watched it. Never really cared. Don't really care about this. Done with vampires. 
pretty much done with Robert Rodriguez. Uh, do you feel any differently about any of those things after having actually watched it? Uh, well, I do think that this looks good. The 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 cinematography is lovely. I think there's some some really talented actors in the group. But what the best thing or the most intriguing thing about From Dust Till Dawn, I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but everybody I've ever talked to, what they always say is that the great thing about From Dust Till Dawn is the twist. When it just goes for crazy, about halfway through, you think you're watching one movie and then you realize that, no, you're actually watching a completely different movie. And you can't do that with this show because we all already know. And so that, that inherently forces them to change a few things up. And uh, there are elements here that I think work really well. I really enjoyed John Don Johnson's performance through it. I would like to see him back on a uh, weekly show. I, like the characters that we're introduced to in this episode, I'm way more interested in the ones who don't stick around and the ones who are supposed to be our main characters, the Gecko Brothers. I don't care about them at all. And that's a problem. Also, I just think this is not necessarily a show for me because when when the lovely little character interactions get broken up by a, like a hole being blown through someone's chest, I'm like, oh, oh, do we have to do this now? And I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be thinking. No, you're definitely not. Yeah, this is just not necessarily a show for me. Uh, but it does look really nice. And if if people are a fan of Robert Rodriguez's work, I would imagine they will enjoy this pilot or that they did enjoy this pilot when they watched it. Um, as for the whole curated network thing, that's interesting. Uh, taking the, the executives out of television or the, um, you know, the, the people who give, give notes and stuff that can be great. It can really free people up, but we've heard several times about how having a, an exterior perspective can be very helpful. If, if the executives or the people who are giving the notes respect and trust the people that they have in charge of the shows you know sometimes those constraints that get put on a show actually really help it to succeed and it helps it to avoid being too self-indulgent or too um too too myopic in its in its look um in, in the way that it approaches its its topic or its characters and so yes there are lots of you know shows that get noted to death or that get uh that aren't understood by the networks that are trying to put them on. But I don't think that just getting rid of that element altogether is necessarily the answer either. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, um, that's another part of the debate that sort of sprung up this week as, as the result of the Veronica Mars movie, which I haven't seen. Actually, I probably won't see for a while, but I know that that movie sort of prompted some debates as, as, as to whether or not fans should be the ones guiding content and be the one sort of, you know, creating content because that does that just transform everything into fan service. And what we're talking about is creator service. And, you know, do we really wind up in a better place by completely ditching the old model? I have my doubts, especially if things like a TV series based on From Dust Till Dawn is going to be, you know, one of the products. There's a spectrum. I feel like maybe Hannibal is on one side of the spectrum and Star Wars is on the other side of the spectrum where Hannibal feels like a show that I'm amazed they haven't told him no that much, really, that they've kind of let Brian Fuller create this 
unique and really uh, impressive and interesting and beautiful and horrible <laughs> kind of show. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have something like, you know, the Star Wars prequels where you really feel like somebody needed to be saying, no, George Lucas, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't maybe be directing and writing this. Maybe it would be good to have somebody else putting an opinion in. So it's hard. You know, I think it really depends on each, you know, each project and each creator. So I, I, maybe there, there are positives and negatives, but I don't know. It's certainly a conversation that's worth having, I think. Well, and the only reason that NBC is able to give Brian Fuller carte blanche on that is because he's working. I mean, the only reason the whole thing got made in the first place is because they were sure that the Thomas Harris universe was a sure bet. You know, if if, if they were giving Brian Fuller the reins on an original idea, I'm sure it would not have worked out in his favor in quite the same way. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, of Hannibal, uh, let's let's move on to that. Before I forget, I did also watch and review Grimm this week. My review should be up at Sound and Sight by the time this podcast goes up. Uh, I enjoyed the episode. There's some interesting notes, uh, and you can read my review at Sound and Sight. But let's talk about Hannibal Hassan, and I probably pronounced that wrong because I'm not up on my, my Japanese 13-course meal uh, names. The episode of the Sound of State Hannibal podcast is already up in your feed, so people will already know my thoughts on the episode. Spoiler alert, I thought it was really good. Um, Simon, what did you think of this episode? Eh, I don't know, man. As far as Hannibal goes, I'm not really interested in the, their approach to courtroom drama. I thought that the judge murder was really over the top in an uninteresting way. Just that whole scene of, you know, we see the reveal of he's holding, he, you know, the scales of justice with the brain. And was it was it a brain in his heart? Yeah. Um, was And then Hannibal walking in, making his punny comment. It was just like, okay, this is a version of the show I'm not really interested in. <laughs> you know, where we actually have Hannibal walking in, explaining some incredibly obvious symbolism to us in this, like, really jokey way, in this really over-the-top, and not, it, like... The, the nice thing about Hannibal is that it does get to be genuinely outre and shocking and even sometimes avant-garde, and this just felt corny to me. Interesting. Now, do you think that is a statement on the the killer of who this guy... Now, do you think Hannibal's the one doing this, or do you think it's somebody else? Uh, it's Hannibal. If it's not Hannibal, um, that would be really dumb. Really? I'm sorry. I th Really. If it's really not Hannibal, I think that's incredibly stupid. I think that would be so... So dumb. I may eat crow on this later, but I didn't even consider that it would be something else because the alternative was just too silly, even for Hannibal. Oh, see, that's interesting. You have to, if you get a chance, listen to our podcast uh, with with Noel Kirkpatrick from from TV dot com because because uh, I, I think it would be weird if it was Hannibal because it doesn't feel like him. Uh, well, except that it does help. To, I mean, it it serves Hannibal's motives, which is to delay and not have will be executed right away. So I don't see why it wouldn't be other than, again, yeah, it's a different style than usual, but there's just as much acumen as usual. So I don't see why it wouldn't be. Okay. Now, any thoughts on a couple things that we touch on in the Sound of Sight uh, Hannibal podcast? Uh, first of all, Will says that the the guy who gets the horrible smile and everything, the unfortunate person, a bailiff or whatever it was, who who is the first victim, he died believing that the he and the killer were good friends. So that points towards it not being Hannibal. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. And also, the dream sequence features uh, Hannibal 
but not the man stag. And we haven't really seen Hannibal pop up in Will's, you know, fantasies or, or projections or dreams as himself since uh, since Will found out, you know, realized what he was. I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on that symbolism as well as the, the first comment. You clearly spend more time thinking about the symbolism on Hannibal than I do. Um, I mean, yeah, okay, fair point about the smile thing, which I hadn't really thought about. Now now you're semi-convincing me that it's not Hannibal, and now I'm actually annoyed because <laughs> this is just not a direction I need. I was interested in the show taking at all. But anyway, uh, yeah, this, I mean, this, your point about the stag imagery is, is interesting. But I, I don't know. I kind of I prefer Hannibal when it's just kind of wackadoo and inscrutable and and ridiculous in a novel way whereas elements of this episode just kind of seem ridiculous in a familiar silly serial killer movie way if that makes any sense yeah it does and i follow i hear what you're saying i do think this is you know one of their weaker episodes but i mean that being said i'm comparing it against episodes that i thought were really fantastic throughout both seasons so we'll see what happens next week when things supposedly uh kick up a notch and start the end of the you know, or start the next uh, part chapter of the show moving. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I'm very intrigued by what's going to happen to ramp things up from where we were in the season premiere. So that should be fun. Uh, what wins your week in genre? Well, I only had the one thing, so I'll give it to Hannibal. And I'll give it to, to Hannibal as well, though an honorable mention to the walking dead this week. Now we'll take a break and come back with our weekend drama. <laughs> drama we have the red road parenthood the americans justified and the good wife so lots of really good tv on uh to to, to talk about uh, the red road i enjoyed this episode the woman who fell from the sky but it feels very much like what it is which is the third of six episodes so things started to slow down a little bit and uh we're kind of if you get the sense that the next episode may be a little bit on the slower side as well before they ramp things back up for the last two episodes it's one of those things where when you only have six episodes you can't do a lot of peaks and valleys because you only have so much space to work with. Uh, but I, I, I didn't necessarily love the rapport with Tom Sizemore and uh, Jason Momoa. I don't really buy that father-son connection, but I'm willing to see if that's intentional and there's more that we're going to find out about that. But on the whole, I like that they make Jean start to stabilize out. I like what, you know, some of what we get with her. I like some of what we get with Rachel, which is saying something because I did not expect to like that, that uh, teenage character um and on the whole i'm uh, still i'm still on board with red road um are you gonna tune back in for the red road at some point during the season or is this going to be like a later in the year like during the summer kind of catch-up show for you I, I may check in later in the season but i doubt i'll catch up i I'll, i get the feeling i'll probably be able to piece it together 
We'll, we'll see how uh, how the rest of the season shapes up. Of course, my review for that is up at Sound on Sight, as is my review for Parenthood. This week, Limbo, what did you think of this episode? I would not want to be you this week, as in the person who has to write reviews of Parenthood, because the more maybe it's just this episode, or maybe it's the more the season goes on, but... And, and again, maybe it's the product the product of the extended episode uh, episode order. But man, I'm starting to get really sick of almost everyone on Parenthood. Yeah, <laughs> Is that just me. No, uh, it's not just you. And I think, but I think that may be a function of two of the things you said. First of all, the specifics of this episode certainly make most of the characters far more frustrating. Uh, it, it feels very intentional. Um, but also, I agree that the the longer episode order really has not done any favors to parenthood and we should say it's not longer than a normal network season it's just last season they were contracted down and this season they've had to expand back out and they are not doing the best job of that Uh, very little of what happens this week ties in or moves the story forward towards where we know it's going to end up at the end of the season it feels like the last few episodes have been treading water i I really like the scene we get with crosby and camille this week but why couldn't that have happened two weeks ago i you know we get forward movement on joel and julia but it takes julia's father just kind of showing up and saying well i'm a man and you're a man so i'm we're gonna solve this as opposed to you know the the two characters who are involved in the relationship talking to each other i don't know why zeke being Potterfamilius is, you know, enough to, to get Joel to listen when Julia and Crosby and does he have any friends? It doesn't seem like it. The pacing of this season has become almost Romanian. The uh, in particular, the whole uh, we're gonna sell the house thing. Yeah. Holy crap! This should have been taken care of so long ago. And the fact that we still have characters being, oh, this is the house we grew up in. It makes us sad. You just need you to understand. Okay, fine. That would have been fine for one maybe two episodes but it's now been how many eight nine episodes of this it's been a lot of episodes yeah so it's yeah and we do get the the sort of hey wait 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 what's going from sarah this week and i like that you know the news travels in different speeds in different areas of the family that makes sense um but but in general this is all stuff that should have and could have happened a lot quicker. And with Crosby, particularly, I feel like they should have tied in his this arc with him. You know, his you know having to accept and be mature about the his parents and their relationship with the house and their relationship with him and all that. I wish that was tying into some other part of his life. I feel like I feel like he should be, you know, having to reflect on this, and that should be shifting the way that he interacts with his kids or, or something. You know, I feel like there's a part of that story that is missing. Right. But instead we get to spend a lot of time with Drew and Natalie. Isn't that fun? Oh God. Yeah, but the time with Drew and Amber is fun. Uh, kind of, but even there, the way they just sort of talk at each other instead of with each other makes them both more annoying than they should be. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's the thing I say in my review. This all feels very authentic. I, I do not doubt that this is very true to a lot of families, but that doesn't mean that it's interesting. And I would like them to move, you know, forwards towards more interesting storylines. Also, just a brief note, Adam and Christina are the worst in this. Uh, they're quite bad. I mean, I I hate to say it, but is it going to take someone else getting cancer for the show to be focused again? Like, do they need to give one of the kids cancer? 
Well, uh, coming up for us soon, apparently, is Sydney starts blaming Victor for her parents' separation. And uh, also Hank and uh, Sarah going on the whirly, whirly gig one more time. So uh, uh, I'm not excited about what's coming. And this is a show that I want to love, that I have loved in the past, and that I still find m- a lot of value in. But they are really struggling right now. Yeah, they're they're testing everyone's. I mean, the fact that now Hank feels like the most selfless character on this show is a real problem. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Let's move on to the Americans and the walk-in. We got some feedback from people last week. They uh, would have liked us to expand a little bit more on the Americans rather than going over it so quickly. So uh, let, let's dive a little bit deeper in with, with the Americans this week. What did you think of this episode? Uh, I thought it was another really, really... St- I mean, they haven't had... I don't think there's been a single overtly bad decision that I can think of so far this season. That's, that's a really big deal. We even, uh, uh, as much as I would like variety, I didn't even mind them going back to the Peter Gabriel. Well, this week with uh, here comes the flood. Uh, If you need a reminder, we heard games without frontiers uh, last season, but anyway, uh, the whole confrontation between Beeman and the sniper, I thought was fantastic, especially his, uh, his last line. uh, What was it? why would Reagan lie to us or doesn't care about us, whatever it was. It was just the right side of cartoonish for that sort of character. And uh, I also loved um, the uh, the crowbar-led would-be showdown that wasn't exactly... It's, we, we've, it's, it's surprising, but we haven't actually seen a scene like that, really, of just trying to intimidate a common person into being quiet. You'd think we would have gotten a scene like that by now, but... Uh, we haven't, and the execution of that scene, I, I thought, was just flawless. Especially her taking the photo was truly chilling. Absolutely. Well, and this continues what they've been exploring this season with being a spy while you're trying to also be a parent. And so, seeing these extra touches of of children, I don't think it's coincidence that his kids are not dissimilar in age to to theirs and, and tying that in of course with the events of the of the premiere i mean there's i'm really enjoying this this uh this focus on the kids this week though really it's not the kids yet is it it's just Paige. yeah yeah and i wonder i i often wonder on series when they choose to focus on one kid but not the other is that are they responding to what they perceive as the strengths of the actors, or is there something sort of de- uh, you know, sort of deeper, more thematic going on because we're meant to be reflecting on that relationship? And we'll see if they decide to incorporate this Henry. Uh, at least I can remember his name, which mm-hmm. is more than I can say for a lot of other kids on TV. Oh, come on. Chris Brody, karate champion. <laughs> right. Um, we'll see if they decide to incorporate Henry. I mean, if they do have doubts about him as an actor, then they're definitely doing the right thing in terms of strictly focusing on Paige. But uh, it could also just be they're not comfortable with writing for a character who's even a little bit younger. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the sense I get from it is just that they didn't really focus on them either last year because, the you know, they were younger. They were a year younger, and they, you know, the, when you're younger, you tend to be more self-involved and worried more about your school projects and your friends and what your, you know, what new video game you are trying to get your parents to buy. Then, huh, how come they're at work all the time? Or what's, you know, this is odd. Or why don't we have any family? And so as right. Paige gets more curious and starts mo- noticing more, I think that may have more to do with 
uh, just her being the older or the elder of the two kids. Now, why all these shows and just only a handful are coming to mind right now, but why there tends to be the older sister and the younger brother so they can have the, the teenage daughter is the one who's getting the more screen time. I'm curious about that trend because that, that is something I've noticed. We don't really see uh, male teenagers being involved in these sort of, you know, significant dramas. We spend time with Sally. We don't spend time with Jean on it's Mad because Men. It's because everyone is afraid of pulling an angel. That's what's <laughs> happening. Um, but uh, I, I will say there was a little bit of course correction with that with Henry this week with, with it, it, it was just sort of, um, it was just sort of layering, I guess, but the, the scenes with him and his star map and then it breaking and him having him losing another potential hobby and that thereby maybe ultimately having to face the reality of his existence. I, maybe that's what they're doing that maybe it's not. And maybe they're doing it very slowly, but I think there was some acknowledgement of what we're talking about this week. Do we want to say anything about uh, aunt Helen? I, w- I was oh, expecting yes. aunt Helen to be the cabin. So uh, that was a nice touch. Yes. Uh, the aunt Helen scenes were quite, uh, quite unsettling, actually, uh, especially the phone call at the end. And uh, we've also never seen them really have to discipline the kids before. And um, the the scene between Paige and Philip was also just a, a real a real bucket of cold water on the show in a good way. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're a badass spy, you 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 know kill people and torture people and beat them up and intimidate them with a crowbar without just really just your words. That doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you are going to be able to discipline your teenage daughter effectively because you're not willing to do what uh, you are willing to do to these other people. So I I think there's a nice bit of comedy there as well as a sense of, uh, you know, these characters having to struggle with control and with uh, with people disobeying them. They don't and in their spy work, they don't have to deal with insolent people that they if they don't. You know, if it's not working, if there's a problem, they can just solve it usually by killing them. Yeah. And that doesn't work with kids. I mean, it does, but it's not much fun. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Any other thoughts on the Americans this week? Uh, No, other than that, if a man, if they can keep this up for the whole run, which I have no reason to believe they can't, it's, uh, I just, ah, oh, I'm just, I'm so stoked for this. By the way, anyone out there, I was walking past a used bookstore in Ottawa last week. And I saw that there was a book for sale called An Ordinary Spy by one Joseph Weisberg. I hadn't realized he wrote a spy novel. So if anyone's read it, I'd be quite curious about it. Interesting. Let us know. Uh, But for now, let's move on to Justified and Wrong Roads. Did this episode course correct for you? I know we've been a little disappointed in in the season so far. I don't know about course correct. It was a little better. So I'll give it that. I don't know if it fixes a whole lot, but it was at least more entertaining uh, the, the the episode was incredibly unsubtle about the whole Eric Roberts being Raylan's older doppelganger thing, which I'm fine with because I, I thought their scenes together worked. I'm it doesn't it didn't seem like from from the velocity of the vehicle that he's a goner uh, next week unless something happens in the following scene. Uh, the episode does end rather abruptly, so we may get more with him next week. But I did; it was nice to see him get any kind of decent material at all. It's also amusing to me because a few seasons ago, we had Art talking about how he didn't like Julia Roberts because she looked too much like her brother. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't know if anyone remembered that or if we were supposed to remember that or not, but that was a nice little weird callback. It's the first time they've had that issue. But uh, yeah, definitely better than the last couple, but 
you know, not uh, n- not a revolutionary move or anything. Yeah, I- I'm. It's interesting how tired I'm already getting of Raylan doesn't visit his kid as a, a storyline because you know they- we've only seen it pop up a few times, but it just seems like such an obvious and easy way for them to go. And obviously with Natalie C not dead anymore, spoiler alert on the following, uh, that, uh... that could affect <laughs> things. But I mean, I don't know. Are you getting tired of that yet? It's only happened a few times, but it just seems like it's so predictable. Uh, I mean, they've done their best to have it come up a few times without putting too much, maybe only underlining it with felt tip once. Uh, I agree that they need to do something new with that. And I think that there's, they've been stuck on a holding pattern with Raylan pretty much all season, but I don't think it's the biggest problem that they've had this season. I think there's just been a general lack of focus, general lack of focus. Um, <laughs> and there's, I think they more than any other season, they've been really hampered by actors leaving this season. I mean, Carolina, uh, Weidra or Wydra leaving, uh, put, like, you know, at episode five or whatever made us wonder why we spent time with that character. Uh, Eddie Gassigy leaving did, I mean, he had a great exit, and I'm assuming they're going to do something with that, but that was still a little odd. Uh, Amy Smart, I'm assuming, is gone and uh, probably won't be back. So what was all that for? Mm. It, it, it hasn't really been an issue in previous seasons that I can think of. One of the things that uh, it just keeps coming up with uh, the whole Raylan and parenting thing is he's this is a character so completely defined for the previous you know run of the show by his relationship with his father and his relationship with his mother and his aunt Helen. I don't know that I buy him as a deadbeat dad, given how important you know these, these family connections for him have been. And how important family seems to be for the people in this area. I buy him as a person who is afraid of exerting influence in his kid's life, given his own family's horrible track record. You know, I I could see him thinking, well, the kid's really better off in the company of his mother and her family because she's obviously a much more stable, well, maybe not much more stable, but considerably more stable uh, individual than I am who isn't constantly getting shot at. So, but you know, we haven't had him actually say that because he's not really the talking sort, but if they wanted to have that sort of argument, I would buy it. Whether they've done that or not is really a, is yeah, a different thing. You see, I just can't, can't help feeling like if Natalie Z were still able to be on the show, then he would be around. He would be a father who was there because he seemed like he was all, you know, gung-ho and set to go as a father when when she was pregnant and they were still together like he was building cribs and you know and uh engaged and all of that what what changed i guess just her leaving yeah once again hamstrung by being do they just not pay actors is that what's happening um anyway i don't i don't know exactly what's going on back there there, there was some good stuff this week i loved the scene uh near the beginning of raylan and the hooker Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a fantastic because you know you, you that that woman shows up and you're just like uh were we doing this again and so glad and I think that they knew that they, you know the, the the justified writers room is still a, a smart bunch of uh, smart bunch of characters they they know how to subvert expectations and I don't know about you but I was so relieved at the end of that sequence and it was also hilarious so good for them uh, and like I said I did like Eric Roberts and as much as 
the last shot of the episode cribbed from a key moment of a last episode of a recent series. I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. Uh, it was still a, a pretty effective image, and I'm so glad they're out of Mexico. Yeah, glad. very glad they're out of Mexico, and I did have a lot of fun with this episode, and I think that's an important part of what we really enjoy about about Justified. So it definitely, like you said, it's a, re- a step in the right direction. Um, the, this continuing Raylan goes to seed uh, storyline, which I, I think is underlined. I mentioned it last week with uh, him seeming like he's basically taken a bribe or at least muddied the water more than he would have a couple of seasons ago. And then this week, you know, he's can't even pick up the hot chick. It's, it's a hooker. Uh, I, yeah, I see what, you know, it's like, I see what they're doing, but I want that to move somewhere a little bit faster. So, yeah. we'll, you know, we'll see. By the way, uh, I don't know if this, is, this would be a problem for anyone, but don't read FX's official log lines about what future episodes are about. Because there is a huge spoiler in at least one of them. Good to know. Noted. We'll not do that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to our final show of the week, which is The Good Wife, A Few Words. Oh, The Good Wife. The Good Wife oh. and its elevators. Oh, oh. oh The Good Wife. Uh, yet another show that knows exactly how to reference uh, its own mythology. I really can't think of another series that could do an episode like this and not have it be totally cringeworthy and instead have it be completely awesome. I mean, we're talking about the fifth season of a show that has long, that has long seasons. Uh, and what, what was the episode number? Like relate into the fifth season. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's I want to say it's at least 12. Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're past the hundredth episode now and we can do an episode where we, you know, go back to before the show started and re-examine our lead's priorities and our understanding of them in a way that actually is compelling and not cringeworthy and not boring. I mean, that is really impressive stuff. Absolutely. It, it, it happens so rarely, particularly on uh, on network TV. But yes, this was episode 14 of, of our season, and uh, it was one of their best episodes this season. I love, not only is The Good Wife officially, I'm sorry, Grey's Anatomy, The Good Wife wins at Elevators, they also win at flashbacks. Yes. Yeah, they they have a peculiar ability to flashback to things we haven't seen before that we could have made assumptions about, uh, and we can be proven wrong or we can be proven right, but they're, I can never think of them doing a really cringeworthy flashback. Uh, I mean, the, the, the longer they go on, the, the more they're going to struggle with making their characters appear younger, I suppose, but that didn't really bother me this week. Um and you know maybe they repeated the the, the Will Alicia uh, elevator meeting shot or scene one or two too many times, but that's like now I'm really splitting hairs. Uh, I was um, intrigued but not surprised to find out that the anti-Semitic bear was a rip from the headlines element because it was just so random. Yeah, but it was delightful though. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, apparently it was an Elmo in real life. By the way. <laughs> Yeah, that that was that was a lot of fun, and you know, whenever they get to incorporate some of these other recurring characters in a way that uh, feels very uh, organic to the storyline, I think that works. I like the little cutaway to what Lockhart Gardner is like when the uh, all the lawyers are gone. That was pretty yes. fun. That was fantastic. Uh, the Bill De Blasio cameo mm-hmm. was 
quite amusing. I especially loved, I don't know if you saw this, but he keeps going over the end credits. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, that which was... Are you, which are usually silent. Yeah, that was... That was a lot of fun. The end, the end credits, even just you know, again, pair the pairings that they they pull out that don't happen very frequently. So this week we get another Elsbeth and Kalinda scene, and it's delightful. Uh, what about uh, you know the other thing that we mentioned with the flashbacks is the notion that they may have to start struggling with uh, with age as the show continues. You know, and especially when you're flashing back to before the show even started. Uh, the one thing that they do here that I think works really nicely is that it's not a flashback; it's it's a memory. And just like we, they had Will. Uh, misremembering the color of Alicia's dress a couple, uh, you know, earlier in the season, that here they have not only Jackie showing up, but you know, if if they oh, yes. look differently, then that could just be a so you know a function of the character's memory. And I love playing with that. Can we talk about uh, Mary Beth Peel a little bit here because that was delightful. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we haven't we haven't had much time with her uh, and Jackie this season, but I I, I did love that. Um, Especially, yeah, just the the idea of of having you're right, not not a flashback, but a memory, and then having that uh, sort of pivot with these sort of surreal, almost like Nancy Marchand on The Sopranos elements mm-hmm. uh, was fantastic. I, I really, I'm really struggling to think of things to complain about. Uh, we we're not getting as much Robin, which I'm not a fan of, but uh, I mean that's going to happen when you've got an ensemble this big. I also love how anticlimactic the speech itself is you know we, we we build up to it it happens at the three-quarter mark it's a pretty unremarkable speech and most people leave and the intended target goes ends up going to tassioni's new firm anyway like that was so much great misdirection well and i like that uh the that they do really like the speech and the speech inspires them to do what the speech says which is not go work for her but go work for themselves uh, and so, you know, I, I really enjoyed that, the the Jill Hennessy character asking what Alicia wants. And then basically, I, the sense I got from it was like, she's like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go yeah. control my fate somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice touch. Um, and I also, like, it, it, it added nothing really new to our understanding of the characters, but I also, of course, loved the uh, the scene in the diner. Yeah, the that that was a really nice moment, and it does move our characters to more of a detente. Their relationship right now, or their working relationship, uh, you know, constantly coming up against each other in court, is is very interesting and is nuanced. And so I'm very glad to see them address it because if just on a level of these are coworkers as opposed to these are people or not coworkers, but these are colleagues in a profession. Peers. Yes, they're peers, and they're going to be interacting a lot. They're not just you know, co-stars on a TV show, they should, you know, they should have reactions to the fact that they keep seeing each other and that they would have these sort of forced social interactions now and again. So that coffee scene, that that, that diner scene really does work. And the other scene that I wanted to specifically mention was the way that the they just tease us. Just they, I feel like they were specifically like going ha at me when they have uh, Elizabeth singing and Nathan Lane playing the piano, and then do they have Mr. Broadway sing? No, because he that character wouldn't sing. <laughs> right? Yes. Get oh. Elizabeth, who is terrible. Yeah, it's like w- w- would Nathan Lane sound awesome at the song? Yes, but uh, we're not going to have him sing because you know. I'm willing to bet that Carrie Preston actually can sing and just didn't. Yeah. Because uh, it seemed like she would. Uh, I'm really digging Eric Bogosian as the investigator. Um, it, it's 
I, I love it when they do when they do this when they have a character who's in the right, completely in the right, but is against our characters. Therefore, it places us in a precarious position as viewers. And is in the right, but is kind of a dick about it. Yes. Yeah. And that that's that's basically the uh, the carry role from season what all of half of season two, season three, that that time period. So it's nice to see that, you know, a new kind of conflict for that. Uh, any other thoughts on The Good Wife or shall we move on? Uh, let's do that. Okay, well, what wins your week in drama? Oh, definitely. Oh, wait, not definitely. Oh, it's got to be The Good Wife for the Americans. I, I'll give it to The Good Wife because this is probably one of their top five episodes in what is probably their best season so far. But The Americans is still killing it. Yeah, they're both really great this week, but I also have to give it uh, to The Good Wife. And um, yeah, I, I've so, so much fun with these characters. And every other show out there, take a look at how this show handles flashbacks, handles character interactions, and ha- handles long-term character development over over seasons. Because the nuance and the development and just the, the, the firm grasp they have on who each of these characters are is absolutely fantastic and lacking in most of the shows even the really good shows that we watch yeah i mean more broadly if you really think about it the good wife is a show about anti-heroes mm-hmm. and there's nothing we're more tired of on tv than anti-heroes so how are they getting away with it because they're so damn good yeah so Pretty yeah much. that's another thing that other people need to be watching it for Absolutely. Well, a few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Sean Coletti talking about Family Tree. Our outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find a post-up at soundonsite.org for this episode where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's television. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow uh, to follow the, the podcast there. You can also uh, talk with us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and you are... Uh, at Sucker Howl. Also in iTunes, we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed for this podcast. We would love it if we could get feedback from you guys there. It does uh, help the show, helps other people find the podcast. And uh, we like, you know, a little reminder every now and again that there are a few of you out there. It's nice to nice to be reminded. Uh, but all of that out of the way, Simon, what is our question of the week? Well, if curated networks are going to have to be a thing, uh, who besides Robert Rodriguez, who already has one, uh, would you like to see get one? I'll answer this, David Lynch. Oh my God, yes, that would be fascinating. <laughs> I would totally watch the Lynch Network. Well, and and on this uh, question, I'm going to add a ca- ca- caveat, if if I may. Who do you want to see a curated network from? Who you think maybe has the time to do it? Because I don't want to hear like a bunch of Joss Whedon answers. Because yeah, yeah, I would like to watch the Joss Whedon curated network. Except that there's no way. He would be able to. He's too busy doing the Avengers and, you know, hopefully helping out a bit somewhat on Shield and all these other projects. So, who maybe is a more obscure choice or an underrepresented choice? Right. And all Lynch is doing is making freaking synth pop records. So he's definitely got time. He's got time. You know, and if he wants to pop back up on Louie, you know, you know, he could. That could be a thing that happened at the same time. Yep. That's a great question. Yeah. Let us know which network you would. You know, if you if you were king of the world or queen of the world that you would make happen. Interesting. Okay, well, we're going to take a break now and come back with Sean Coletti from Sound on Sight and TV Overmind to talk about Christopher Guest's one season wonder over at HBO last year, Family Tree. There's been a death in the family, but um, good news is she's left us all a little something. Oh, that's great. Exciting. I mean, sad that she's dead, well, but that's yeah. all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and this is all yours. Totally makes sense to me. I've always had kind of a military air about me. Jesus! Why are we doing this? To find out, you know, our pasts. Could we be related? I don't think so. I hope not. I've been using this website about ancestry. I trace my family to California. L.A., baby. Si casa, say mi casa. Our house is your house in Espanol. What are you, the traffic leprechaun or something? You just call me a leprechaun? Yes, I did. I called okay. you a leprechaun. I'm twice the height of a leprechaun. Side of the face. Now, silent movie acting. I'm glad you're enjoying yourself. It's fantastic. I want answers. I want the truth. Tongue and keys are okay, but the rest of the assembly are freaks. <laughs> oh, I have a vestigial tail. Oh, this is a toothbrush with a book of instructions. Oh, I see what you... Yeah. <laughs> when I found you, I found myself. I was gonna love you like nobody else. But I never really had a clue how to love a girl like you. A temporary paradise Now our future's in the past I should have known it wouldn't last I should have been a better man You could have been a better friend I'm alone, but that's okay that's just wrong that way. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are talking a more recent short-lived series, Christopher Guest's Family Tree. And here to help us discuss it is Sean Coletti, my co-host over at Sound on Sight's Hannibal podcast. This is our design, as well as contributing writer to Sound on Sight, as well as TV Overmind. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So what was it about Family Tree that made it one of the shows that you were most interested in discussing? Um, this was actually my favorite new comedy of 2013, and um, I was a little bit surprised by the fact that it didn't get a renewal. Um, not just because HBO's comedy brand is a little bit more confusing compared to the drama brand that they have, but also because it seems like even the ones that are um, or that have a much more niche audience seem to get at least a second season. And so I thought that this was a really often funny, but also very touching eight episodes of, of the short-lived series from Christopher Guest. And I, I guess I'm a, fran, a fan of Christopher Guest's films as well, which is what brought me in. Um, but I, I felt like this was at least different enough that it, it felt fresh for the work that he's done before. And, and it was a really kind of fresh half-hour show from last year. Yeah, it was a show that we reviewed uh, pretty regularly on the Televerse when it was airing, and we enjoyed it, but it didn't quite break through for us the way that we were maybe hoping it would. We you know, we enjoyed it. Obviously, I'm a big fan of, of Chris O'Dowd, um, but something about it didn't quite demand to be watched or demand to be viewed. It was very, uh, It was very aware of what its tone was and what its comedy was but much like and I think looking has sort of run into this as well this season though it did get renewed looking didn't demand that you watched it in a way in the way that say girls did in its first season and so I think that's maybe that's that sort of 
just contentedness with just being interesting and uh and you know comedic in its own quirky little way and not really be being appointment television being discussion controversy television i think went towards uh people overlooking looking and also overlooking family tree when you talk about girls as a show that grabs your attention and hence being part of, of their brand i think to put a finer point on it, the shows that they tend to latch onto for comedies tend to be a little bit on the edgier side uh, in one way or another. So that's why, you know, eight, eight Eastbound and Down got to stick around for a while. Girls again to stick around for a while. Looking, even though very few people apparently watch it, it does have a, a sort of a niche factor that you know, sort of uh, necessarily the other shows don't get. Um Whereas shows like this one and something like Hello Ladies, which I didn't like as much, that are a little bit more uh, innocuous, a little bit theoretically, a little bit more general in their uh, in their approach or in their appeal, if they don't catch on in a really popular way, seem seem to not get option for a second season. I, I was also surprised this didn't get picked up just because it felt like it was starting to find its feet near the end of the season. The whole season felt like it was working itself out in a not unpleasant way. Uh, and I certainly found it, like, like I said, much more likable than Hello Ladies. But uh, as much as I am, I have some issues with Christopher Guest, especially uh, his last couple films, I, I would have liked to have seen them get a chance to keep improving. Absolutely. And to the shows that, we've been mentioning I think they're good comparison points and looking my experience with the first season of looking was really similar to my experience with watching Family Tree they're both eight episodes and it was about halfway through where there was a shift and I think that's when it for me became if not appointment viewing something that at least felt like it had depth in the same way that that first season of girls was with Family Tree, it was a much more obvious shift because the the location goes to California, and now we get a new cast of characters. And those four episodes, I think, built up to the the relationship or the potential relationship between Tom and Allie um, that wasn't really resolved at the end, and it, which left the door open for much more development and something that would be really interesting in, in a second season if it had gotten one. And... I guess that there were certain quirks about it to begin with that made it seem like just a show that felt like it was content being what it was. I think that the the monkey thing, Bee's Monkey, was sometimes a funny gag if sometimes also annoying. Um, that kind of stood out as a very Christopher Guesty type thing. And there wasn't much there in the first four episodes that felt like this was a really great cast of characters to get to know. And I think that was my problem with Hello Ladies and even something like Getting On, which also has gotten a second season, that I, I didn't become invested in their lives. And I think as Tom was having more and more difficulty pinpointing his his origins, his family origins, and after that had led him to California to experience a, an entirely different lifestyle than the one he had been used to, um, that kind of created that investment. When you talk about Monkey or Monk, uh, that is a character or I guess a creation that did not work for me for much of the season until I want to say the episode around three, four, five, somewhere in that vein, where we have that that wonderful Skype call from from 
B to to Tom and it's just the monkey talking about how she had a really bad day and she didn't get this job and and all of a sudden there was this this tinge of sadness to the character and not just the sister or the monkey but just the whole creation of it and that I thought worked in a really significant way because we couldn't see her we could only see you know only the the hand puppet was up to the camera that that made uh, a big difference for me and all of a sudden I connected with that that character of both her and the monkey much better it that was sort of like a a breakthrough moment in enjoying that character and that bit of the show um i'm wondering if if you guys had similar reactions to to either that character or some of the other you know as the show went along what are the other examples you guys can pinpoint for you of when the show started finding its feet and really connecting I think that that moment you mentioned is definitely one of the best they ever did. I would still say on the whole, the monk or monkey character thing, creation, whatever you want to call it, alter ego, was more miss than hit. Uh, and it, it's, I, it felt like it was too easy an excuse for them to delve into sort of traditionally Christopher Guesty awkward humor. Uh, whereas something like a character like Allie, the character played by Amy Simons, by the way, no actress has had a more diverse television CV over the last couple of years, or TV and film CV rather than Amy Simon. She's she's amazing. Uh, that character has no has no analog in any Christopher Guest movie. She's so normal, aggressively normal, and non quirky or awkward, and just charming and delightful, and. That to me was almost an acknowledgement of okay, there are there are Christopher Guest staples that don't necessarily work in series format, and maybe there are things that we need to tweak. And I think that character was was a signpost that they were willing to shake things up a bit. Whereas I think in other parts of the show, when they lean hard on the Christopher Guest formula, which they do on occasion, uh, it doesn't necessarily work as well in the longer format. I also think the the form itself in terms of the narrative for me was what was a big draw and that I think also picked up at some point around episode three or four where we kept delving into these family heirlooms. Obviously Tom gets that chest of things and so that begins his quest and he goes looking for um, to historians, to the guy who runs the, the photo place to try and get any more information information that he can put together about his family and it, it becomes like a weird comedy version of like a, a single season murder mystery arc you know there's a bunch of red herrings in this and it, it's building up to some kind of payoff at the end and I guess the good thing about that for me was that there that payoff like was kind of absent that it the journey it, to sound cheesy and to use the cliche, the journey for him obviously was much more important than whatever kind of epiphany he wanted to have or about that connection to his family. And at the end of it, again, bringing back Ali, that was a way of um, using that journey as a jumping off point to, I guess, like a new stage in his life where he can reevaluate the relationships that he has with people based on the information that he had gotten. And her being American, obviously, um, helps contribute to that, and I would have liked to have seen him stick around in America after that for at least another season. Well, I did enjoy all the humor that they got out of the the cliches of of people look, looking into their family trees, and uh, the I always love. I want to say it's Key and Peele 
that did a family tree uh, sort of um, ad about people looking into their ancestry and it's all of these you know different people who are so excited that they're really related to this really famous person um, and uh, there's a whole other bent to that that sketch but um, you know I, I really enjoyed the humor we got out of oh well that that explains why you know when he thinks he's Native American for like a second uh, it's like all oh, that that explains my connection I've always felt connected to the earth I, I think they did get a lot of mileage out of that as for the different types of uh, you know like the, the episode of the week kind of or ancestor of the week format that they tended to have earlier on I think that did become much more successful for me as much as I enjoyed some of the different bits like the whole pantomime horse and all of that I enjoyed that um, but I think the whole journey becomes much more interesting as soon as we have our main characters as fish out of water in, in the US though I'm I think I actually enjoyed the recurring characters in the first half of the season I may have ended up liking them more but just the the position that our leads are put in you know when they're over in the US and we're getting more commentary back and forth uh, more point of view I guess from Christopher Guest about these different people and these different cultures th I think that part of the show is what uh, worked a lot for me yeah the recurring characters I think definitely were stronger in the first half but then I guess some of that slack was picked up by some good guest turns that you mentioned the the Native American um, episode and and Graham Greene the character actor Graham Greene had a, a good turn in that and obviously Fred Willard uh, a big Christopher Guest actor got to do his Fred Willard thing and that was a lot of fun too. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that I was relieved that as much as you know the show didn't blow, knock my socks off or anything. I found it strange that HBO was willing to pick up a Christopher Guest series so long after he made his last film, and his last film was uh, it wasn't for your consideration, um, and that one was really I thought was really mostly pretty hackneyed. And I think the nice thing about Family Tree is that it helped him to refocus on actual character arcs in so so that the actual tone of the show reminds me most of something like A Mighty Wind which I think that movie gets the pathos versus silliness balance almost perfect, whereas I feel like Family Tree is still working that out up until the last episode. But uh, I will say I, I was relieved that the show didn't, uh, didn't lean too hard on sort of his, uh, his unsavory tendency to go too crass at the wrong moment. Well, and I think having Chris O'Dowd as your lead you know, helps a it's lot. It's a big part of that. Yeah. That, yeah. He fits so nicely into the Christopher Guest world. It was actually, I mean, it's, it's very much what you expect. It's Chris O'Dowd playing the Chris O'Dowd character, basically the nice guy version of the Chris O'Dowd character. Whereas, you know, his character in the IT crowd or some of these other things are, are like the more the, the douchey or the dick kind of spin on that. But he does fit so seamlessly into just the Christopher guest world i'm curious because obviously moon boy did take off uh, somewhat over in the uk it's a show i really enjoyed and uh, tried to you know triumph or tried to trumpet somewhat on the televerse which is of course chris O'Dowd's you know irish series that he made uh, i'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on why that took off in a way that that this one didn't seem to is it just that it's straight up more accessible i have no idea honestly because this, I mean, this is one of the most accessible shows HBO has ever done, and I, I, I wonder if it would have actually fared better had it landed on some other network, maybe if it had even been a network comedy series somehow. 
because uh, maybe like, you know, a typical single camera setup as opposed to a laugh track, because Chris O'Dowd just seemed so naturally poised to be such a big deal, especially because this came, this was maybe only a year or less after Bridesmaids, which would have introduced him to a huge audience. So if I was working for HBO at the time, I would have been completely flummoxed that this didn't do better. I've not seen Moonboy, so I can't make the comparison. And again, I have trouble kind of reconciling certain of HBO's decisions about which comedies to keep and, and which ones to not. I guess probably if I were to anticipate that reason, it would, it would be that the Christopher Guest style of comedy just didn't suit well. I mean, this didn't pull in great numbers, but obviously most freshman comedies on HBO don't pull in great numbers. And even something like Girls, which is talked about endlessly online um, and in social networking, is something that doesn't pull in great numbers by other network standards. So I guess they're trying to come up with a brand that, that seems more connected. I think Looking falls into that. Girls does. Uh, it makes more sense that Getting On did get the second season because I think that fits in as well. And this was probably just on the peripheral, not because the tone or the pace was any different, because I think that works. It might have just been the style of comedy. I also wonder, actually, I mean, I never heard if it was a unilateral decision, but you know, Chris O'Dowd is the creator of Moon Boy. It's his baby, and I wonder if uh, the production schedule of, of one show got in the way of the other. That's true, and I know that uh, he is, at least there's talks of him making an American adaptation of Moon Boy, or that he's working on that now, and so, you know, if, if you throw that into the mix along with, I think they got renewed for two seasons, and so the, I, I, I yeah. keep waiting for more Moon Boy for, for me to watch over in the U.S., but, uh, but I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if something there did connect with it. Did you guys have, I mean, I, we didn't really dive into his performance very much, because I do think he's very much the Chris O'Dowd character, and I'm kind of curious, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on this, it's not specific to family tree but i'm curious if you guys have a, a limit that you're going to reach where you become less interested in that chris o'dowd character i'm willing to just kind of go with it for the moment but i was trying to think about when i was pondering the show why doesn't it bother me that it's exactly what i expect from a character played by chris o'dowd i should want more from him as an actor but somehow i'm i haven't reached that point yet well i i think the difference is that you know, there are a lot of actors that have a persona and it's all they do and it's fine. I'm thinking of, uh, for instance, a guy like Josh Radner, for instance, who plays pretty much the same guy in his dreadful movies that nobody should watch as he does in How I Met Your Mother, as he probably does in whatever else he does that I don't watch. Um, and, you know, there's got to be dozens of actors like that. But I, I think that affability is actually a pretty rare quality for a persona like that to have. Usually, you know, we, we how many times have we discussed on the show the nice guy that isn't a nice guy, whereas Chris O'Dowd tends to play losers as opposed to smug dudes. And characters like that are rarer than you'd think if you really scrutinize and generally, I think, way easier to take even in large doses. There were plenty of instances in this first season in which it, the line being towed was very, very careful, and it could have verged into that smugness, but they avoided it in really smart ways. Every time that he sat down in, in the first half of the season with a date, and it obviously was going horribly because the person was inadequate in some way from his perspective, he never like approached that from a, 
um, not from a spunk point of view, but they're respectful. Even when the, it's clearly, you know, the person seems insane, <laughs> the character may not be well suited to this person, but the show uh, doesn't insult them or belittle them as much as it's it is, as we're with the Chris O'Dowd characters, as much as we're with Tom saying, get out of there. Uh, he, he always re reacts in such a way as to make the situation as uh, as, as unawkward or as comfortable for everyone as he can. He doesn't, you know, he's not selfish in that way. And I think that yeah, does right. make a difference. And I, and I think, like you sort of uh, alluded to earlier, Kate, that affability goes a long way in sort of nullifying some of the trickier or more troublesome aspects of what Christopher Guest does. And, um, I mean, when we I, I was talking earlier about characters that have no analogs. The heroes of actual Christopher Guest movies tend to be a lot more sort of oblivious and more deer in the headlights than the Chris O'Dowd character is. The Chris O'Dowd character is at least aware that he's a loser and is aware of his failings in life. He's not necessarily super uh, chipper about that all the time, but he's definitely got a, more of a sense of who he is and what he's capable of or could be capable of uh, than the Christopher Guest characters who tend to be really deluded all of the time. And again, I think that was a smart and deliberate choice that's, that should have uh, been better for, you know, forming the foundation for a longer series that, of course, we never got. Yeah, and you were talking earlier about where this might have landed if it wasn't on HBO. And if you compare somebody like Tom Chadwick to Jake Peralta on, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was also a new show from last year, um, I think it fits with those Fox leads who are kind of losers. Obviously, Jake is much more... Um, not repulsive, but he's definitely somebody you have to spend a lot of time with to get to know and to like and to warm up to. But he has that kind of um, non-smug quality about him when it comes to, to things that he actually um, has legitimate and genuine feelings about. And I think that, that Tom fits in with that. So I, this could have easily been uh, a Fox sitcom, I think. See, now I'm imagining this show, if it had been one of those uh, Jason Kadams, I'm going to take this under my wing projects. Hmm. Or I'm picturing a uh, just a, a, a scene with Jake Johnson from New Girl uh, and Peralta, or one of those characters from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Tom Chadwick all being uh, just being kind of affable at each other. Uh, yeah, I, I do think it, it, it would have to be... Uh, more wacky though and in a different kind of way than you're going to get with a Christopher Guest so I don't know I, while I think the character that's an interesting analog I don't know how well the show itself or how much the show would have had to change in tone to fit you know a, a network broader you know a, a approach or a type of humor because I mean a lot of the humor I, I really enjoy for example the one of the other things that come right to mind for me is uh the the turn with Ed Begley Jr.'s character at the towards the end, where all of a sudden he's like insane, and you're kind of worried that he's gonna kill Tom. Uh, I don't know how much all you know some of the different quirkier and um, just stranger types you know of, of humor that you get in this would necessarily translate to a network audience. Uh, well, I think that's generally true. Although even on the networks, there are outliers. Like just looking recently, like Enlisted, where people like, you know, Mike Royce and uh, Kevin Beagle are able to inject unusual amounts of pathos in with their quirkiness just by, you know, just 
by virtue of their setting. I, I think Family Tree could have translated uh, to a network environment with the right handlers. Uh, and it's, it's uh, especially, I guess if they'd known it's fa their fate at HBO, they probably would have gotten that route, but, you know, hindsight. Do we have uh, any other characters we want to specifically talk about? We haven't really talked, we talked about Monkey, we haven't really talked about the sister outside of that context. Um, or, or who are the other characters that stick in your mind that you enjoyed or maybe that, you know, unfortunately stick in your mind? I think that, that Pete, um, Tom's friend, was somebody who definitely fit into the the Christopher Guest universe, but it was a smart decision to kind of give him less to do as the season went on, because even though their friendship was good, and, and I think that they each brought out entertaining and inter interesting things in each other, there wasn't much use for Pete in the family tree world, I think. He, he was kind of just tacked on to scenes here and there, and so that might have been one of the, the weaker parts of the beginning of the season, but they... It seemed like they understood that and learned how to manage it as it went on. Yeah, the use of Pete seemed to be mostly, uh, especially in the second half, he seems to be mostly there to make Chris O'Dowd's character seem more, seem smarter and more reasonable. And that was a that was a fine beat for one or two episodes, but I did find it quite repetitive. And I was a little bit disappointed when they made the decision to keep, to send him overseas as well. To be honest. Well, I think I like the double team, though, of the two of them. I think they, they work well off of each other. And I did get, you know, there was a um, sort of manic glee to his, uh, you know, an energy and just, uh, or maybe even even like you mentioned enlisted, enlisted earlier, sort of like the, the Parker Young kind of everything is awesome and, uh, you know, really positive bubbly energy to Pete's interactions with kind of everything in America. There's a puppy dog quality to him where he just wants to love everything that I think actually is endearing, uh, I think, when he's being, you know, more uh, towards the, the ruder end of the spectrum, I, to use the, the British use of that. Uh, I don't know how much that character necessarily worked or really added to the strengths of the show, but I did actually really enjoy his enthusiasm. And, and the, I liked the recurring, you know, sort of comedy of, of Pete and B and that whole situation. I actually did, I was surprised to enjoy that scene as it is such a familiar beat. Yeah. No, I think I think that was um, in terms of we mentioned most of the characters. We did talk a little bit about B. Yeah. I mean, it was really just other guest turns. I, I liked Kevin Pollack in his role. Um, all the relatives really in California, I think, contributed to making that whole scenario seem really manic and and out there. But it was a lot of fun, I thought. Do we have any favorite uh, episodes? I mean, we've already talked about some of the moments that really worked for us, and ob obviously the big highlight, anyone who was listening to the Televerse when we were reviewing this, the big highlight for Simon and myself was definitely that that uh, Chris O'Dowd, Amy Simon's uh, relationship, or Tom and Allie, I should say. But do, are there any specific episodes that particularly worked for you guys or, or, or storylines? Uh, well, just to return to that relationship for a bit, like every, and to underline why I liked it so much, Anyone who's listened to me on the film podcast or even on the television knows that I'm really, really, really persnickety with romantic comedies. I almost universally hate them because they're mostly universally terrible. But uh, I thought that that relationship was just handled with uh, so much sensitivity. And I, I think that the way um, it, you know, it helps that we have all those horrible pairings uh, earlier in the show, but... I think the the way that they present those characters and how they play off of each other in a believable way uh, is just fantastic, and they had such great chemistry. 
uh, and it's really a shame that we don't get to see any, any more of, of where that goes. I, I would actually hope that he uses her again, maybe in that horrible sounding idea that is the American version of Moon Boy that I've just heard about. I would definitely echo those remarks and just the very last scene of the whole season when they're at the airport and, um, and Tom kisses Allie was probably the highlight. That episode, maybe as an individual episode, wasn't the best, but I felt like looking at it within the context of the season, that was probably the one that got the most emotional reaction out of me. But again, probably the the Native American reservation one I thought was great. Yeah. I mean, you, you've just mentioned it's a romantic comedy plot that ends with a scene in, in an airport, which is where <laughs> every romantic comedy ever made ends. And I, I, that should just make me angry, but it doesn't. And that's a testament to how good it was. Yeah, for the most part, this did introduce me to Amy, Amy Simons. And I yes, Simon, I need to watch Upstream Color. I, I know this. I've wanted to watch it for a while. Uh, haven't been able to yet, but uh, but I did really enjoy getting to to meet her here, and then of course finding out later that she was also that horrible mother in the one episode of The Killing I watched. You're, you're right; she does have such a remarkable uh, range in her her film and television work. But that was really a, a, the big surprise for me. And if I had if I wasn't already a big fan of Chris O'Dowd, that would have obviously been the thing I took away from it. Uh, as for the individual episodes, I would absolutely agree with the Indian Reservation episode as well as and how that ties in with the Schmel and I, Kevin Pollock was another standout for me in this one. Also, just the whole arcing of the the pantomime horse thing that did that did stay in my memory surprisingly well, considering the storyline uh, and and just the whole uh, family drama of uh, the wife and the two members of the horse. You know, these these are ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous storylines, but they're ones that they stick with me and that I, you know, have a, a fond place in my heart for. And it's something we talk about on the Televerse every now and again, but I do have, I feel like there's this lack of happy and positive television out there and let alone uh, television that is geared towards, you know, the middle class and normal experience. Obviously Tom flies across the, the Atlantic Ocean and stays with rich relatives, so I don't know how much he could talk about the middle class, but he also he has to get a job. He doesn't have enough money. He's having trouble getting a job. He gets laid off. That's sort of what sparks all of this. He gets dumped. And uh, and so, you know, I think there's just a, something to be said for a pleasant and pleasing show, and a show that's just content to be that, and that that, that is enough to drive it. Uh, obviously, it didn't get it. It wasn't enough to get it renewed, but it did, you know, it, it's a different kind of uh, sitcom, and it's a kind of sitcom that I feel like we could use more of. I think that's the biggest reason to recommend it, definitely. With things like Parks and Recreation, those don't come around very often, and and even when we do get some of them, they're not really as well-written as this is, I think. And you brought it up early in the podcast, and I experienced it as well. It's really easy to forget about something like this, especially when it airs earlier in the year. And when I went back to compile like my best of list at the end of the year, I had completely forgotten about it. And when I was thinking like new comedies, you know, all of the new network stuff that premiered came to mind. So, so Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Trophy Wife, Mom, um, and I think I had the wrong man's up there. But when I went back and kind of went through some clips of some of the episodes, it was just like, yeah, this was a really fun and entertaining series of eight episodes, and that was kind of enough to elevate it above everything else. Maybe it wasn't as laugh-out-loud hilarious as some of the other new things, but it it felt like it had more of an impact on me, despite the fact that I had forgotten about it briefly. 
And that's what you ask for in a show like this. You want to be entertained and you want to, you know, have a story that you feel like you can follow, characters that you care about, and not everything needs to be Hannibal. Not everything needs to be completely intense. Sometimes it's actually nice to have a come down show or just, you know, a show where you just feel like you can hang out with the characters for for such a short span of time and and live in that world and that's all you need. And so I do think that this is a show I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about on the DVD shelf because it's like you say Sean, it would be easy for a lot of people to uh to to see that it didn't get a season 2 and then to, so therefore to think that they shouldn't even bother checking it out. But especially if you like Christopher Guest, if you like Chris O'Dowd, if you are curious about Amy Simons, this is a show to watch and it's only 8 episodes. It's you know, eight half hour long, you know, it's four hours of your life. And if you're, if anything that we've been saying over this DVD shelf sounds interesting to you, you should try to check it out. I would concur with all that. As would I. Well, thank you, Sean, so much for coming on the DVD shelf and, uh, and getting me to, to relive, relive some of these moments of family tree. Uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, some of my writing appears on sound on site. I'm currently reviewing Oh, wow, both of them have just ended. So just elementary, actually. And I do some reviews for TV Overmind as well. Uh, Kate, you and I host a Hannibal podcast for Sound on Sight, so that's a lot of fun. Viewers should, uh, listeners should tune into that as well. And you can find me on Twitter, at Sean Coletti, and also on my personal blog, thereisnothingon.com. Well, and I know they did just end, but uh, but I, I know that some of our listeners would really appreciate if we had been reviewing Banshee every week, and we haven't been. We haven't caught up with it yet, but uh, if anybody who's a fan of that can read your reviews at Sound on Sight. Uh, you have sort of a catch-up of of the season that that did just that did just end. Um, I'm I, as I recall, you were a fan of the season, John. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm in the process of writing an article about kind of second seasons and how difficult they are and how Banshee somehow managed to avoid falling into a lot of those pitfalls. But this was a huge step up, and I imagine that we'll be doing some regular coverage of Banshee for next season in some form. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Sean, so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Television.